All of you have a book because uh, you're going to, you know, the book is made for you. I, I, I really designed it around your questions that you sent because whenever I speak somewhere, I mean, other than like an inspirational kind of thing, I like, even then for that matter, I kind of like to exegete you before I teach or speak. Uh, so this book is really designed around your questions, literally. Um, and so as we go along the, the time together, so we have till four. So we have one till two-ish, and then we'll take a break. And then two to three, three to four, okay? And, you know, I'll, I'll hang out and answer whatever. Feel like, feel like you can ask me anything. Okay, if I could, if I could like empower you. Don't feel like you're gonna ask me an embarrassing question. I'm happy to tell you my failures of, as well as my successes. I'm I'm happy to tell you anything. Well, like we'll cover economics. We'll cover pretty much everything. Okay, so don't feel weird about it. I know, and which is funny, because you guys know that in a lot of church circles, what we are going to do over the next three hours simply is not done. Uh, it's very one way. Uh, kind of very top-downy communication is normal in Assemblies of God circles. I'm I'm on a mission to change that paradigm. (laughs) I like to invert it so that, because I believe that what it does is it holds hostage the information a bit. Like, if I don't let you ask me questions, I'm presupposing that I know all your questions, which I kind of do because you asked them and Vic gave me them all. And I've organized this whole book around them. But I'm just saying, like, I want you to feel free to ask me questions. Don't feel like, oh, Mike, not my... if I don't know the answer, I'll tell you. And it's, you know, it's not going to freak me out or something. Okay, so my first question, which, uh, which is the why question. I just want to talk to us about why for a minute before we get into all the, you know, who, what, where, when stuff. <laughs> because to me, the why drives everything. Uh, you must be convinced of the why. You must be convinced of why I am here. Why did I fly here? Why are you doing what you're doing? This gets a bit back to that sermon that we did earlier uh, from Zechariah, but uh, the why issue uh, is of paramount importance. Uh, let me see your book here for a second. I see you leaping through. Is there notes on the why? It's 10. It's 10. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm sorry. So if you go to tab 10, that's where all of your note-taking section is. Thank you so much. Uh, all of the other tabs I will direct you to, hopefully, <laughs> along the way. Okay? <laughs> so in 10, in 10, you guys have Y on the top, yeah? Yeah. Yes. Yes, and there are extras. Uh, again, I don't want to take them home. <laughs> I about killed this one uh, lady on the airplane. <laughs> that suitcase, no exaggeration, I think it weighed 60 pounds. It's a small suitcase. But I, had to, I carried it. I didn't trust them because I thought, oh, my gosh, if they lose that. <laughs> so I carried it. <laughs> so, you know, like I'm in this plane, and I got it up there okay. But when I was taking it down, I'd been sitting in that plane all the way to Atlanta, and I wasn't ready for it. <laughs> and so when I pulled it out, you know, it's like 60 pounds off to the side, right? So I pulled it out, and it, there was a lady right here. <laughs> the wheel missed her head <laughs> by like an inch. I was like, oh, I'm so sorry. And it hit the chair, like, you know, because I couldn't catch it. <laughs> I know, exactly. I'm actually surprised that you can 
because it's over the limit. I'm surprised you can carry a 60-pound suitcase in a carry-on. I don't think they've caught that issue yet. <laughs> anyway, the why, okay? Uh, you know, I just want us to talk about this, and I don't want to presuppose it. Jesus, you know, the incarnation happens in order to build the church. Jesus Christ, the, the America is full of people who claim to be Christians and are not. 80% of America says they're Christian. I don't know about your neighborhood that I live in, uh, that you live in, but my neighborhood, there's no way. I mean, where I live specifically, like my literal neighborhood, like I live in a condominium project with 33 units in it, uh, there are maybe uh, three different units uh, that are uh, you know, like Christian in, a, in, the, in the saved understanding of that term. But most of them claim to be Christian. And, and there's an in- increasing amount of Americans. This is way true in Catholic circles. This is huge in Catholic circles. I believe that if, if you can learn the language of how to communicate to Catholics, you could get hundreds and thousands of them saved and they would be coming to your church. New break, we probably have at least 25 to 30% of our church was formerly Catholic. And now the Lord uses me because I know their language. I am Catholic. I grew up that way. So I, I know the language. I know the dialect. I know how to do it. And by the way, just FYI, never touch Mary. Leave Mary alone. They'll figure out the issues of co-redemptrix and Mariolatry as they go along. Don't touch the Holy Mother. Leave her alone. They'll figure it out. Just as a word of caution. Uh, But the why, like Jesus came to die to build the church, what we're doing. So we must be compelled by the same basic missio dei that Jesus was, like the, the mission of God on the earth. We must be totally committed to not just building Christians, but building churches. And churches are not buildings, it's a building, this is a house that houses Christ's followers who come here for varying meetings, right? I mean, the people of God. Your basic ecclesiology must drive you. You are in the ministry of getting people discipled, you know, to know Jesus and to, you know, be equipped by him, by his spirit, and then to use those gifts in the ministry. You must be driven by this. And you must constantly be driven by the commission to to give it away, to constantly give the gospel away. Remember Evangelion, the gospel, the good news. You are called to, you know, gospelize people. That is your basic call. That's got to be the driving force of everything we talk about this afternoon. It must compel us. We must have the same mission of God that Jesus had. And once again, this was extremely confusing to me when I first became a Christ follower because you Protestants were very confusing to me. From a Catholic worldview, uh, one of my pastor friends, he pastors in um, a community where 80% of them are Catholic. From a Catholic worldview, Catholics, we see one holy and ca- uh, apostolic Catholic church, one, ho- one church. No matter where we go, the ritual of the Mass is going to be the same, basically. I mean, you know, a few little frills and frills around the edges, but whatever. And they all are one, there's one pope, there's, you know, one cardinal, you know, the cardinal seat, there's, there's one structure. When I became a Christ follower, remember, okay, grew up Catholic, filled with the Spirit, independent, charismatic, oh my gosh, 
<laughs> um, then uh, Nazarene undergrad. First time I, I didn't know what Nazarenes were. I picked the university because it had a lot of PhDs. It was fully accredited and it was quite famous on a scholarly level. I picked it because I didn't know anything about the Bible and I knew I needed to smoke an undergraduate education because I didn't know anything. When I became a Christ follower, if, you were, if I was in a church service and the pastor, the priest in my mind, would say, turn to John, I would look around the pews for John. I would not know that you were referring to a book in the Bible. I would have zero idea of all the books that John wrote. None. And so when I became a Christ follower, okay, so I'm Baptist, then I'm independent charismatic, I'm going to a Nazarene undergrad. I get involved in this little church in Ocean Beach, California. That's Assemblies of God. It was very, very confusing to me. It seemed to me like you were all super, super divisive. By the way, simultaneously, I'm translating the New Testament. I took two years of Greek as an undergrad. So I'm translating the New Testament, and I look at the church, and I thought, wow, what a bunch of divisive jerks. I, I was startled. I mean, really, I, I have to be serious. I was very stunned at the lack of collaboration and synergism and sharing of best practices. I saw territorialism. I saw kingdom building. I saw everybody getting rich off of their book that they're promoting, and I have nothing against writing and all that, blah, blah, blah. I, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying the spirit of things, the why must drive us. What we're talking about this afternoon is quit being so stinking territorial and so worried about your whatever and be more sharing, more see it from God's perspective. God does not look at the, at the earth and go, oh, there's the assemblies of God. I want to keep them the assemblies of God. Oh, there's the Baptists over there. I want to keep them the Baptists and whatever, whatever, whatever. I look at church history from a kind of spiritual sociological phenomenon, like like, this is how the Spirit of God did it in times and places to raise up movements by His Spirit that would keep aligned with His Spirit and really collaborate. And I believe that the, the lack of collaboration that has been historically, probably over the last 30, 40 years in the Assemblies of God, will be her death knell if she doesn't get over it. I believe that the Spirit of God is moving across. This is without question. It's not like I believe this. This is simply the case. <laughs> the Spirit of God is on a move in the world to get his people to do things more collaboratively. He's been doing it for about 30 years now. He's going to keep doing it. And my point is, is that we as Assemblies of God people at least should be helping all the other Assemblies of God people in our purview. Like, we should be helping each other all the time. And do it as cheaply as you can. Like, give your stuff away. In, an, in, in our world, in Newbreak, we kind of give everything away. Like, if you ask me for resources from Newbreak, I will give it to you. A lot of them are in this book. This book is worth tens of thousands of dollars from a systems perspective. It's worth an enormous amount of money. Now, is it wrong to sell it? No, it's not wrong to sell it. It's just that I'm giving it away. So you get it, <laughs> okay? And I'm, I'm just saying, this is the why. The why of, of the scripture is to, every, uh, workers are the, worthy of his wage. I'm not, I'm not saying anything like that. I'm just saying, we need to quit building so much industry and continue to build ministry. 
they're not necessarily opposed to each other, but they often are. I just see it. And as an outsider coming into Christianity, I was kind of appalled. Now, granted, I was saved in the whole, uh, what would you call it, the televangelism era. <laughs> so I was saved in a very bad time, <laughs> like from a marketing standpoint to me, because I, I was your market. So, from, I mean, just you had a horrible marketing issue. You had a horrible marketing issue. Their names were Jimmy and Tammy, and Jimmy and whatever, you know, and Robert Schuler, and, uh, uh, you know, you had a huge marketing problem. So we need to work against that marketing problem all the, all the time. And your spirit that you are with other pastors under your care, and the way you give away best practices and let them to see. Uh, Teresa, my wife, she, uh, when she was uh, starting that charter school way back when, on her board were, uh, you know, Saul, Saul Price, you know, Price Club, uh, Costco, that guy, uh, the, the founders of Walmart, the Waltons. Uh, that guy, Walton, his famous saying was, steal shamelessly and improve. And that's what I want you to do all day. Steal anything from me. And then I'll steal from you. And then together, we have the collaboration. And then together, we'll, we call it shaking the planet. That's kind of our thing. Uh, we'll shake the planet together. We'll, and again, don't despise small beginnings. We're out just riding our tricycles as fast as we can down the road, okay? Um, so that's the why. I just want to make sure we have the why that's kind of ingrained in us. And, and uh, you know, before we get into the, all the hows and whats and whatever. Anybody have anything you want to say on the why or... Um, Ask a question. I don't care. Whatever. I'm just asking. You know, honestly, I'm involved in this. Um, George Wood, our, our you know, um, general superintendent. You know, essentially the leader of the Assemblies of God of the world because he's the chairman of the board of whatever the world thing is. Um, you know, I'm in this think tank for George. And... Uh, that's what we're trying to do in that think tank, too, is, like, speed everything up and collaborate together um, so that we can help each other do it. And I'd encourage you to get in uh, leadership communities where you, you build this kind of ethos because you need to learn. You need to learn from each other. I always say you need to have somebody ahead of you, somebody alongside of you, and somebody behind you always. And so you want somebody ahead of you, not so far ahead that you can't see them or steal that's a big problem sometimes. And I'll hopefully do things in such a fashion today that, that it'll feel close enough to you that you can steal enough stuff. Depends on, on size of ministries to some extent. But you need to, like, if you're, if you're struggling to break the 200 barrier, you need to find somebody who's broken the 200 barrier sort of fairly recently and, like, get together with them and steal everything from them because they'll show you how to do it. If you're trying to break the 100 barrier, you get with somebody who's broken that barrier and figured out how, to, how they did it, and then you steal it from them. And don't be afraid of stealing. There's nothing wrong with stealing. I mean, you know what I'm saying. Like, like in the right way. <laughs> Don't steal in the bad way. <laughs> like me. I was having a hard time because, um, because you know, now we're, we have a multi-site of six multi-sites. Uh, there's about 3,000 people in it on any given weekend right now. And I'm struggling with what, how do I get from three to 6,000? See, that's my, that's my struggle. So I have to have people in my life that are at four or 5,000 and 6,000 and so forth. 
And I have to create those relationships so I can steal. Because I don't know what I'm doing. I don't, how would I know? I, I, I would have no clue by myself of how to do it. Uh, and you don't learn any of that in seminary. I have lots of graduate stuff going on, whatever, blah, blah, blah. One of my great friends, he's the New Testament professor at Bethel, and, you know, he's kind of an advisor to our sermon team. But, you know, you don't learn how to do these kinds of things from them. So let's go to the how, okay? So this is kind of about how uh, Newbreak does it and how, how it is that we do it uh, internally to Newbreak, okay? So that's uh, Appendix uh, uh, 1, yes? So, a few thoughts on this. We are big on, um, you know, launching campuses, which obviously require campus pastors, and there's all kinds of different things that are important to how we do it internally to Newbreak. And so you see under tab one, you see a campus launch overview. Um, uh, You know, on the left-hand side there. Uh, you have introduction, Newbreak Church established in 1986, a growing multi-site church with an average weekly attendance of over 3,000 people on six campuses. These are the, camp- these are the locations. All of these, by the way, are in San Diego County. Um, so, Larry, how far is the farthest one from you? That's about us. That's about the same. Um, uh, well, except for, like, the beach campuses would be maybe 30 miles from the inland campus, kind of like. But... The historic mother, kind of like this campus, the historic mother is central to all the kids. And we use parenting language and children language and adoption and birth. You'll hear me use that language all through the day. Um, but anyway, so you see it on the, uh, in terms of the introduction and, and how we do it. It's like, it's like, you know, important to understand the purpose and the core values and consideration Purpose, this written uh, Newbreak Campus launch plan serves the following purposes, to identify a clear vision and purpose for the startup of a Newbreak Campus, to identify actions. And these would be the same thing if you're planting a campus or planting another church or, or planting a, a multi-site in our case. And we've done both. Um, to identify detailed actions required to achieve the vision, to yield a high impact, high quality startup at minimum cost notice again. Remember the cannonball versus firing thing of Jim Collins. And I've learned a lot along the way in terms of mistakes there, by the way. <laughs> um, the plan is t- uh, intended to be flexible and adaptable uh, as God leads us and is not intended to be a fixed, unchanging document. Everything is sort of an experiment in Newbreak, so everything is changing all the time. Uh, change agentry is probably, it comes natural to millennials very hard for boomers, but better for boomers than the previous generation. Um, uh, to provide a clear and concise written plan that will enable participants in the project to understand their roles and responsibilities in support of the vision, to provide a clear set of expectations to which Newbreak Church elders, catalysts, and other partners can assist and monitor the progress and effectiveness of the project. The plan identifies measurable expectations that were big in Newbreak with regard to measurables. Um, I don't know if you have ever read the book called Execution. It's a tremendous read. I forget who writes that book. It's not a Christian book, but it's a great leadership book on, on measurables and executables. You have to have those clearly articulate when, articulated when you have church plants and when you 
adopt campuses in our case or, or have multi-sites. You need to have very, very clear expectations. Uh, otherwise, it'll be a disaster for you. I just have learned that again the hard way. Our, our vision statement, which is, our vision statement works in all of our multi-sites. Uh, and we'll get to the MOUs and stuff in a minute, but so our vision of Newbreak, we just changed it about six months ago, is to be uh, in communities, loving communities, shaking those communities for Jesus. Uh, we, we changed, it used to be in a city, loving a city, impacting a city for Jesus, but we realized that, that became stupid because we were in multiple cities. Like, that was just kind of dumb. So, plus, it was just too city-driven because we realized that we would be more rural eventually. So we changed it to being in, uh, in communities, loving communities, and shaking communities for Jesus. Uh, we came upon the word shake because we launched a very famous sermon series uh, now a year and a half ago uh, called Planet Shakers. And so we, it changed our whole world. It changed our church life. Uh, we went... Uh, before we did that sermon series, our giving per unit was, uh, it had fallen to about $1,350 per person, man, woman, and child per year. You should know that number, by the way. You should know the number of giving per unit per year. You should be able to tell me that right off the top of your head. You should know it all the time, all the time, all the time. I learned that about two years ago. Um, so our giving had dropped to about $1,350 per person per year, man, woman, and child. So you can figure out right away if you have a hundred people in your church, how much money, how much would your budget be? I am. Yeah, it'd be a hundred and thirty thousand five hundred, right? Uh, or five, yeah, yeah. Did I do that right? No, it'd be one hundred thirty thousand, thirteen hundred and fifty bucks per person. One hundred thirty-five thousand. That would be right. One hundred thirty-five. So that was our budget number, 130, uh, 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 you know, $1,350 per person, man, woman, and child. When we did the Planet Shakers series, our giving went from $1,350 per person to $1,850 per person. So you grew by, a, I don't know what that math is, but that's a whole boatload. We developed a system of generosity internal to New Break that changed our life. By the way, if you want a name of a company that would help you immensely with this, be worth their weight in gold to you, it's called Generis, Generis, G-E-N-E-R-I-S. The owner's name is Jim Shepard. That isn't anywhere. But Jim uh, will help you with all those kinds of things. And, and so will we. I mean, you can, you know, you can ask me all kinds of questions about that. That as you go along. I'm just saying, and we'll get to economics in a minute, but, but we just developed this whole system internally because it revolves around the word shake, okay? So our vision became in communities, loving communities, then shaking those communities for Jesus. And how do we do that? We do that by addressing the core issues of your life. And so our core issues, the thing I would drive all the time was up until then was be in a worship experience, be in a life group, be in a ministry, and be in an outreach. Those were our four core values. Be in a, I expected you to, to grow in Christ. I expected you to be in a life group, in a ministry, in a worship experience, and in an outreach. If you don't do those four things, you are going to backslide. You're not going to make it. You will be a casualty of the war that is your life. You'll never make it because that's the way Jesus did it. That's the way we do it. Now, two years ago, I realized I was missing something very key. 
the number one sin in America is not pornography, ladies and gentlemen. It has nothing to do with pornography. I mean, it, I suppose relatively has something to do with it. But the number one sin in America is materialism. That's the number one sin. And so we develop generosity as a fifth core value. Generosity. Now, I want you in a life group. I want you in a ministry. I want you in a worship experience. I want you doing an outreach. But you also must develop generosity. Jesus said it over and over again. You cannot serve two masters. You cannot do it. And if, you're, if, if you are not tithing and then developing generosity beyond your tithing, then you're simply not growing spiritually. And it's not just that, not, not just that how much you give is a measure of your spirituality. I'm just saying it's impossible. <laughs> the opposite is impossible. You can't be spiritually mature and not generous. It's impossible. There is no such animal. So in that Planet Shakers series, uh, we slay, I, I told my sermon team, I said, I want to slay this, uh, this question. We developed an entire FAQ page around this. I said, I want to slay this question. I don't ever want anybody to ask this question without being able to direct them to an FAQ page. And here's what I want that page to answer. Isn't tithing simply an Old Testament law concept, Pastor Mike? And aren't we under grace now? Okay, so we developed a sermon series that killed that question. I mean, slaughtered it. I mean, if you had any theological acumen whatsoever, you, you just like were convinced that you had completely missed the subject from a biblical theological perspective. So we developed this whole Planet Shaker series around it. This year, we included it into a magnitude series, we called it. We rebranded it, same thing. And it really revolved around what we call a 90-day challenge, which is the method uh, by which we did that. We made, a, we made uh, a challenge in the sermon series to tithe for 90 days, and if God doesn't show up, we'll give you all your tithe back. Now, when we did it, we were probably, I don't know, probably 2,500 people maybe on an average weekend. Um, like, we batched the people that were in that group that made the commitment to the 90-day tithe, and... Their giving just in that batch went from, I want to say it was around $300,000 the year before that point. We batched them in our database. They went from 300000 roughly to 960000 I believe it was, in the next year. The data I'm giving you now is about a year and a half old now, by the way. So I have a fairly significant data by which I'm an- analyzing this. And I've taught a lot of people to do this now. Like, um, like I have this one friend. He did it. He just launched that series, in fact. He texted me. Uh, he's just freaky. He has a church of 6,000. <laughs> he's like going nuts. I told him his name's Mike, like me. I told him, I go, Mike, if you do this, I'm telling you, your people are going to go crazy. <laughs> so... So here's where he texted me. Okay, week one. We had 789 take the 90-day challenge, representing 444 households. Don't have week two numbers in yet. Imagine having that many people repent of the key demonic force in their life. You have, men, you have never had a men's retreat with that percentage of your men repented of doing pornography. And I would argue that part of what's going on there is they're getting slain by the 
uh, demons of lust because the demons of materialism have them running wild. That's why they're working their little fingers to the bone because they're after the money. The money's theirs, and they're responsible for their families. So they're working so, so hard neglecting their families to do so, so they're tempted so much by porn. And they're, you know, it's just like, set, it's a setup. All of that's happening in the church in America. So it's about, you know, core values, really. Our vision, and this is shared on all of our campuses. Any campus that Newbreak gets involved with, we are the same vision, same core values, okay? Same core values. Like, we do it all the same. We hive, I call it hiving, like bees. We work together, like, like that. And, and, uh, and then, okay, so you, you address the core issues, and then our, mis- our kind of missiological statement is all around the word shake. So we, we, uh, we kind of collapse everything into the S-H-A-K-E. So S stands for eradicating sickness uh, all over the world. So we're very involved in, from a missions perspective with regard to that. We have a huge, we're big, big, big into water issues, water products and water um, processes. So we, uh, we do potable water. We've adopted the island uh, chain of Fiji, the nation. Um, we are now their standard of care by their government to address their horrible potable. It's a great irony, you know. How many of you have ever bought a Fiji water bottle? Yeah. So Fiji, we started a separate nonprofit because we didn't want to associate with New Break because we wanted money from corporations. And so Fiji Water gives this corporation $30,000 because Fiji Water has a huge marketing problem because they export water, but they have kids dying of you know, dysentery, and they're, they have huge problems there. And so we're now their solution in their own country, which is a huge irony. <laughs> it's just sort of funny. But uh, anyway, like, so, okay, so eradicating sickness. Oh, uh, uh, addressing the issues of human trafficking. That's what the H stands for. We're very involved in human trafficking. And we do these things both locally and then globally, okay? So we do all these things everywhere. Um, uh, we have a home that we support in San Diego that is for hookers, basically, that come out of that industry. And they were once upon a time trafficked uh, and then got locked into that lifestyle, but they have no way out. So we, we help them there. We have an orphanage that we support that is basically prostitutes children. Um, so we're, we're just super involved in it. We're involved with David Grant. I don't know if you guys know him in India. And uh, the, uh, Clark and Jennifer uh, Jensen, I want to say, is their last name. So we're all involved in that. Um, uh, that's... Uh, oh, and then aid for the poor, we're, that's what the A stands for. We're very involved with aid for the poor in a lot of different ways. We organize everything around this SHAKE acronym. K, K stands for kingdom development, which is church planting and multi-siting. Uh, that's, obviously, we're very, very involved in that. And then E stands for education. We're extremely involved in the public schools in, in our communities where we are, all of our campuses. But then we're in the process of launching our first charter school. Our first charter school will launch in September of 2014. Uh, Then we're going to launch hopefully two simultaneously in 2016. And then we're going to hopefully launch the fourth one, I guess it would be, in uh, the next year, whatever that year is. (laughs) But I'm trying to create an engine, but it's extremely expensive and complicated. But I'm trying to create an engine that could launch charter schools, predominantly Assembly of God churches. There's 450 Assembly of God churches in my district or my network. We oversee 450. You guys have 100, yes, Vic? So, so we have 450. If I had the engine built by which I could launch charter schools, charter schools are public schools 
that operate as public schools, but you can hire and fire the teachers. There's no union, which is the number one problem of the public school system in the United States. You cannot fire a teacher. But they're public schools. You cannot preach Jesus in them. But that's fine for us because we don't preach Jesus in the public schools we're already involved in. So missionally, this is very, very much a sweet spot for us. So I'm, I'm trying to build a motor. Now, this will long outlive me, but my goal is to build this engine that will launch charter schools in, in Southern California, essentially, uh, and alongside of all the churches there. Because then what you do is you lease out your entire church facility to the charter school. So there's a missional and a monetary kick to it. It's a business model that will blow your mind. But the missional side of it is, on my campus, I can just imagine having 300 non-saved kids and all their families coming to our campus where we can just do love. We can just love them. We can care for them. We can buy them things, buy them backpacks. We have huge issues in our public school system. I don't know how it is here, but our public school system is horrible in San Diego for the most part. So it's just like a dream of ours, and we're working hard on it. Um, and it all, see, all of what I'm talking about is the way it is in all of Newbreak and, you know, to some extent in a lot of my spheres of influence. Um, and you have the launch timeline there, seven to eight months. I'm not going to go through all this. I'm just going to give you guys this. This is, this is how we do it, okay? So we have the, you know, the launch date and, uh, you know, you initiate prayer team, prayer walks, um, you know, begin identifying key ministry leaders and potential staffing needs, um, Identify a whisper launch date. We're kind of thinking of this date. You know, we're not sure. Remember, keep everything in experiment. Always. Be careful of fixing, like, things. This is what we're doing right there. Be careful of that. Start uh, experimenting first. Um, You know, we take a walking tour of the campus location, local community. We ultimately pick the campus pastor and so forth, and the Catalyst team develop a general two-year plan, which includes goals and objectives and help, you know, to help fulfill the purpose and so forth. All this stuff is at, you know, seven to eight months. If you flip the page, seven to eight months out from the launch date, five to six months out from the launch date, you know, five to whatever, uh, four months from launch, two to three months from launch. Again, I'm not going to go through all this stuff, but it's important for you. You have... uh, if you, I don't know what page it is. They're not numbered. But uh, key stakeholders, like key roles and responsibilities, you have the campus pastor, the launch coordinator, the worship leader. Worship is key, by the way. Uh, Larry, yeah? Worship, you know, that's a hard nut to crack, too. And to keep them all on the same page as a multi-site so that you're not too controlling, but you want to control kind of the experience. Because the first, you know... I mean, arguably the first two minutes, but certainly the first, depending on how long your worship experience is, that'll either kill it or grow it, because that you haven't even got up there yet. <laughs> they don't have a clue of who you are. <laughs> Though I would encourage you to be the best greeter your campus ever had. If you're going to live every, anywhere in the first ten minutes of your worship experience, live where the greeting happens. You are contagious either way. I live in the greeter space. Now, I take it on the chops because I'm not in that worship experience. Now, I have a lot of them every weekend, so I can always be in one. I'm just saying, I, I, I live in the greeter territory. I live where the children are. 
So I'm, I'm, the, I'm, I'm super good at sales. <laughs> like, I'm good with people. That's my gift. On a disc, I peg the eye. Do you guys do any kind of personality uh, profiles or behavior profiles? I, we use disc in a new break world. I'm a super high eye. I'm the highest eye on my staff. That means I love people. I, love, I, I, get, I, I get energized. I get energy by being with people. So I like it. So like the kids and the parents, you know, I'm super good with kids. I was a children's pastor one, once upon a time. Uh, so my first uh, portfolio, before I was ever paid, I'm just saying, I was in this little church of 30 people. No one was doing anything with the children, so I got involved in teaching the children as a baby Christian. Then it needed organization. Nobody was recruiting anybody. So I just began recruiting people, and then I had to get out of the classroom in order to build the paradigm. And then, I, then when I went on staff there in 1980, part of my portfolio was children's ministry. Then I became the children's ministry rep for San Diego, and, you know, so I've always had a heart for kids. Um, but my point is, is that you, you, have to, you have to lead by example in every single way. So, like, the, the way in which you can do that in campus launches is teach your campus pastors to be crucial to the role. Having said that, you gotta, you got to pick. Um, you know, you have the campus ops director, life groups coordinator, outreach leads. The, all these components have to be on their teams. Obviously, children's director, uh, youth lead, hospitality lead, technology lead, media lead, uh, per team lead. All those things are important. Um, if you flip the page, you got, you know, again, these are just all kinds of things that you guys can look at on your own. Um, obviously, you need to do demographics. Um, you, you guys, Vic, uh, you guys use uh, um, Mission Insight. You guys use that? Okay. All right. Um, that would be a point of growth and education uh, forward. A lot of us don't know how to do this. I don't know how to do this on my own, but that company that's all web-based, it's fairly cheap to do it. It's called Mission Insight. You could call um, Rich, and Rich can tell you for positive, but I think it's called Mission Insight. It's an online environment that will do demographics of all of your communities. We, that's what that page is, uh, Appendix A there uh, under tab one. I'm looking at this multicolored thing right here. This is really before the analytics, Trevor. I'm, I'm still back on how we do it under Appendix one. But this is the demographics of all my campuses. See, it's sort of complicated in multi-site world. Like, Larry, you get it. I mean, you know, the demographics of this ring of geographic influence is not like those. So you have to know, and they got to know ahead of time. By the way, honestly, uh, at a church this size, it doesn't any matter anymore to a certain extent. But when you're, when you're smaller, I am a big fan. I know of the challenges of this, especially if you have kids growing up. But I'm a big believer that it's, um, it's got to be M, in missiology, you call this M1. Um, I am a big believer that if I'm at a smaller church, that I need to live in that community. Because I need to know the pulse. I need to know when the parades are. When the, where do they party? Where do they hive at? Where, where are the watering holes? Where are the power brokers? You know, where, how are they gathering? How are they, how are they in their mind, you know, like how are they shaking their community for Jesus kind of thing? Like, because they're just, everybody's, you know, everybody's sort of philanthropic, even if they're not saved. That's the Imago Dei. They're, they're created to have that in them. 
well, how are they doing it, and who are they? You know, like in schools, obviously, who's on the PTA? That'll tell you right off the bat who's in power. <laughs> you know, like if you're trying to Im- Im- impact a school, you need to get on the inside of the PTA. That's number one. Like you got to know who they are. And, and best if you can now, and that's a key strategy, obviously, to grow a church, get people that are in your church to get on the PTA. Get them to go from just being a coach on the Little League, that's first. Get them to go from being a coach to being on the board. Now, not to Jesify them. Not to do all the, did you know that John 3.16 says, not that, not, not, not to do like that. But to just love those people and influence that thing. Then give them money to give them. Build it into your missions budget. Remember, <laughs> I have to be careful how I say this one. <laughs> Remember, ladies and gentlemen, you are a missions project. Sometimes you're so involved in Africa that you're underfunding Charleston. Jesus said it. I didn't say it. I'm not saying this isn't me. Don't get me in the middle of you and Jesus. This is a Jesus thing. Jesus told you in Acts 1 how to do it. Don't get me triangulated in there. Between you and him. Where did he say to go? Jerusalem. Then where? Judea. Then where? Yeah, then where? Okay. Okay, so be careful. Now, I've always been a big supporter of missions. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying you need to work this out in your missions stuff. You get involved with Jim Shepard. He'll talk to you about the one fund. That's another whole subject for another day. (laughs) Uh, Look at description of average target audience. That's important. Like, when I was in La Jolla, okay, we went through the church split, right, 1992? So I've been there for six years, went through a church split, dropped to 60. At the time, I was probably 1992. I'm 59. How old was I? What was that, 13 years ago? What is it? No, it's more than that. However old I was. I just realized the demographic of La Jolla, average age is about 65 and very religious. And then the Saved ones were super eccentric, like really, really charismatic, charismania, honestly. I had a bunch of them in, in our church at the time. And they left because I wasn't charismatic enough. You know what I mean? Like I wasn't charismania enough. So what, what happened was we had to realize who is, who is my target? Who am I really good at reaching? I'm obviously really good at reaching non-churchy people Catholic, but not churched. I'm not good with church people. I don't do it right. I, I'm just, I'm, I'm horrible at it. <laughs> I, I, I knew this of myself at that time. Now, my guys, my team, my band of brothers that were in my leadership around me, there were only 60 of us left. We all realized, because by then, there was 13 to 120 to 60. Everybody in my scope of influence came basically because I was the pastor. I mean, it had been years by then. I owned it by then, right? So we just decided, we as a group, we're not good at reaching La Hoyans. I said, where are they? And, and that was another thing. I'm, I'm obviously educated. So I, I was good at educated, non-churched, you know, Catholic background, some kind of church background, but, but not saved. Where do they live? 
So we did a demographic study of San Diego, close enough to us that, was, that it was geographically proximate enough to move and plant. That's when we planted ourselves. We planted ourselves in what's called Tierra Santa, which is kind of funny because it means holy ground in Spanish. So we planted ourselves in holy ground and as, a, as a little church of 60 people. And, but we did that because we, we knew who we were good at reaching. You have to figure that out. Who are you good at reaching? Now, you generally can reach, at the most, about 10 years older than you, and that's if you're super good at it. I'm not that good at it. Like, I am, I wasn't joking earlier. I'm old in my campus, like, for, for me. Like, everybody's my kids' age. But I, I can pull that off pretty well. Part of it is also what keeps me able to reach younger is because I surf. Because I surf, and I think it's even the shaved head look, if I could say. So you need to shave your heads. But, but part of my deal is I dress very purposefully. This is what I preach in. Uh, I literally look like this when I preach. Uh, now, I do that very purposefully, um, like these shoes. My, ki- my kid, my youngest, uh, he, wanted, he felt called into the surf industry. Go figure. <laughs> so he felt called into the surf industry. So he became involved in a company called Reef, uh, Reef uh, Sandals and Shoes. They're a very famous company on the West Coast. And sur- these are surfing circles, and obviously San Diego is a huge surfing town. So he got involved in Reef. And then he grew Reef crazy. Then he got hired by Vans. And he took their surf shoe brand of shoes. He took it at, uh, I think it was $7 million was their gross product in that line. He grew it to, uh, no, I think it was $12 million when he took it. He grew it to $24 million in its first year. He grew it to $48 million in its second year. He grew it to $72 million in his third year. And then this company... Right here, these socks. See how weird these socks look? Okay? These are called Stance Socks. This is the, this, this brand of socks. Okay, Ryan, my son, he won the SEMA Award, Surf Industry Manufacturing Award, for the, the best uh, brand in the entire surf industry last year. This guy, John, who owns this company right here, uh, the founder of Skull Candy, he took Skull Candy from zero to public. Do you guys know what Skull Candy is? It's a headphone kind of industry. That guy went to work with this guy to form this sock company. When John came to me and he said, I'm going to start a sock company, he was the president of Reef. My life group is in his house. So when John came to me and he said, I'm going to start this sock company, I'm like, socks? What are you thinking? (laughs) Is it that big of a market? So then, you know, Stance was birthed. Last year, Stance won the SEMA Best Breakout Brand Award. John, the president of Stance Socks, hired my son to, to do all of his kind of brand and all that stuff. Okay, so I and his wife, Ryan, my baby, he's 30. His wife is the Hurley, this shirt, he's the, she's the Hurley rep for Orange County, the most sought-after county in the world for Hurley. How many of you know what Hurley is? Do you know what Hurley is? Do you guys have it out here? Okay, so I let them dress me. So every time I see Ryan and Melanie, I say, what do you think of this? And I look at what they're wearing. And I say, Why are you, what are you, what's this? You know, what are you doing? And I ask them questions all the time. And I take pictures of things and I send them to them. And then they can tell me, oh, that sucks, Dad. Don't buy that. You look like an idiot. You can't pull that off. And, and I, tell, I ask them all the time. Because the older we get... 
because you must read the conversion age. I mean, we have a lot of people in Newbrick, I'm sure you do here, they're like 50 and 60 years old. This guy I ever baptized, I baptized him just a few years ago. He's like 85. I mean, you know, like, I lead older people to the Lord all the time. I'm just saying, you must reach to the young. So I, I dread, I'm very missionally. Like, I say, I say I, I, if I thought a suit would work, I'd wear five of them. I'd have, I, I'd have ten of them. I'd have the smoking of suits ever if it worked. Right now, I have one. <laughs> I have one. I wear it to marry people. <laughs> if they want, most people don't want me to wear a suit anymore. Uh, and a lot of times at funerals, I, I wear that suit. Uh, but point is, is that you must know who you're good at reaching and reach them. Reach them. I have this one friend, Joe. He's about 85. Once upon a time, he was the pastor of Newbrick. In La Jolla, the little church of 13, 100 years ago, Joe was the pastor. And when he was the pastor, it was like 30 people or something like that. It was a cool little church, right? Old school, way back in the day. Joe's like 85. He pastors a church in this retirement community in like the greater LA area. He's still churning away, man. That dude, he's like a raging, crazy person. But his church, I bet he's got about 60 people coming to it. He's super good at like very old people. He gets it. He knows how to speak their language. I'm horrible at that. I'm really bad at that. Unless they totally like me because of the style. My point is you must figure this out. And it's, this is where the complexity of campus pastors comes in. And appointing pastors to take little dead churches. Like it's super problematic. Because they have to be good and they have to know this. Like if you ask them, they got to be able to tell you five things that they're, they're, they know they can reach those kinds of people. And, and then ask them, how, how would they do that? And what's their style, their vibe? That's huge. The millennials, they're all over this. Everybody's writing about this, okay? You have the marketing plan details there. Um, this is kind of stuff that we do. One of your questions we'll answer later on that. You have the outreach plan and so forth. Um, you know, evaluating and refining process. This is all under tab one. Again, like I said, you guys, this is a bit like drinking out of a fire hose, but uh, you have the timeline stuff too. Uh, kind of timeline, timeline seven to eight months out, five to six months out. You can check them off. This is a cool little checklist to give. Um, by the way, some of this is crossover and applicable to small groups or life groups. Um, just FYI. It's also a great way to get life groups involved in missiology, where you get life groups to go outside of their geographic zone on purpose to do prayer walks around a campus you, you, know, you want to adopt. Or, you know, like let's say you have an AG church in trouble, that, you know, like it's in a pastor transition, you don't know what to do with it yet, send a team out from your church. And this is true, like you can have a church of 30 and still send missionally a team out there. All they're going, doing is going over there to pray for, but never despise small beginnings, okay? Never despise small beginnings. Um, okay, that's, again, that's a lot. Okay, <laughs> how, how new, uh, one thing on your, uh, well, let's do the analytics. Look at tab two for a second. <laughs> Demarcate this. All right. All right. Uh, analytics. This is under tab two. So this is a thing that we gave out, I think, in January. Yeah, this is sort of a thing that we gave to everybody in the church um, that sort of articulates what's happened. 
in the last year, different things here. Um, go to this graph. This is a cool graph. Um, this tells you our church history as a plant. 1994 to 2013. Isn't that a cool graph? It's like, uh, I didn't realize it until I was in a leadership community that it's very unusual because it grew every year. Notice we don't grow fast. Relatively, right? I mean, you know, we don't grow like Peter, this friend of mine in in this think tank, uh, in this leadership community. You know, he grew to 4,000 people in like six years or something. Like, we don't grow that fast, which is somewhat of a, issue. Um, but that's kind of our, our numeric story. Um, look at the annual tithes one, which is the next page in my binder. It looks like this. This is, see that big red bar on the end of 2012? That's the difference that that sermon series made, which you can go to my website and steal that entire series. You can have my exegetical notes and I'll tell you about our sermon process in a minute. It's not mine, really. But um, that was the efficacy of that, of that series. And then the systems that we put in place to develop generosity in Newbridge. Okay? It wasn't just the series. I don't want to mislead you there. This is, our, this is how we measure uh, campuses in terms of their uh, weekend statistics. Every, uh, generally, every Monday, I get an email that articulates this. I should have it in my inbox now because it's... 142 here, so what time is it at home? It's like uh, 10.42, 10.42, maybe not. But I get this every week. I'll, I'll give you a moment to look at it for a second. I'm at this page. Yeah, that multicolored one, this one, that one. Look at how we do it with the campuses, okay? So, oh, this first one is a braggy one, though. That's Easter, all right? Don't even, you know how Easter is. <laughs> I mean, it's cool, but whatever. Um, you know, it's 4,665 people. But, like, look at the next week was 3,055. And notice how we do it. So the Tierra Santa campuses, see in the light blue, those are, um, those are the ones that I'm at, although I do not do the 5 o'clock Sunday night. Uh, another pastor does that. His name's DJ. He's about 31, maybe. And DJ does the 5 o'clock Sunday night. I do the other three. By the way, my video sermons, I shoot them on Thursdays in a room to a camera. Very different. Uh, We came upon that modality some years back. um, But that's how I do it. So from a a, um, psychological and a spiritual perspective, I have literally a Sunday morning service on Thursday morning. Because psychos, you know, spiritually, you're, you're... You have the adrenaline process. You have all the spirituality of that that happens on Thursdays at 11. I shoot that video. So I actually have four services every week because we have to shoot the video. I don't have the sophistication that Larry has. So And plus, I don't want to play in that arena where I'm, like, running stuff over to them. We've had so many failures there. I could go on and on, but whatever works, you know. Um, You know, so it's it's a debatable issue as to how, how one should do that. But I'm just saying, these are the numbers of my campus. You have to understand, in my biggest campus, which is the one I'm at, our biggest room seats 550 people. Now, we're building an outside venue to it, which is a live feed, 
but there's maybe only room for about 75 people in this, in this arena. So we're, we're in a facilities problem at the mother right now. So we have a huge problem. We're trying to figure out how to fix it. And then notice, like, like notice, okay, so Scripps Mesa is in the gray, right underneath Terra Santa totals. Do you see that? Do you guys all, are you guys all on the same page? Okay, so notice how he has two services. One has 64 people in it with 17 children and nine workers for a total of 90. I'm going right across the page. You know, they had one decision for Christ, five first-time guests. See? Are you guys with me? And then notice in his second service, he had 85 adults, 17 kids. And they meet in a school, by the way. This is a setup and a teardown every weekend, which we were once upon a time. So I get it. I also get it when you complain about it. I complained about it. I get it. It costs a lot of manpower to do it. I get it. You think you couldn't grow because you're in a school. Oh, poor you. I guess that's just unique to you. I guess you're the most unique person on the planet. No, you can grow a church in a school, set it up, tear it down. The facility can be pathetic. I've been there, done that. Don't tell me all your little drama. I'll, I'll give you money to get it better and make better sets, blah, 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 blah. But do not come back to me with the excuse I can't grow my campus because I'm in a school. Oh, really? Ask Rick Warren. Santee, notice 49, 18. That's an issue. Whatever. See how we do it? We measure everything. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Nope. Counting hands, and then we use a connection card. Are you familiar with Nelson Searcy? Okay, so we kind of do it Nelson style, like where we have them uh, fill out a card called a connection card, and then they drop it in the offering. The offerings that there are normally at the end of our worship experience, and we challenge them to fill that card out and put it in the offering, which gives guests a bit of a segue over the awkwardness that can sometimes be there with regard to an offering, so it makes that a little bit purposeful for them. Uh, every other week, by the way, every other week in New Break World, and I'm after being in my last leadership community, I'm thinking of going to 75% of the time, we show a giving moment video during the offering, which answers the question, why do I give? Why do I give my tithes and offerings? I want those videos to slay that question. So, I mean, every other week, you see a video about how stoked you are about how much you give. Like for Mother's Day, we changed the whole paradigm this past week. Because historically, we gave, and, you know, after you have a bunch of campuses and a bunch of services, I mean, I don't know how many of those services, like 14 of them, right? So, if you're giving away a pedicure and a manicure and something else to women, like two or three of them per service, add the money up. So what we decided to do was, let's do it different. Let's have each of the campus pastors go and, and interview a mom and then, you know, ask her, oh, what do you like about being a mom? And, you know, not new breakers, like out on man on the street. Oh, what do you like about being a mom? What's one of the things you love doing with your kids? And then some other question. And then we said, well, we wanted to help you have a great Mother's Day. So here's a gift card for Target for $100. They started crying. They were like, oh, my gosh, that's a nice thing. People inside my sanctuary applauded. So anyway, we do that all the time. Uh, sorry. I can go on and on with stuff. <laughs> oh. So that's how we measure. And notice every week I get these. Um, 
And Robert, my executive pastor, more importantly, gets them because he's in charge of holding their, uh, not their feet to the fire, but, you know, keeping us accountable for what we are doing. Um, now I'll go over more of that in a little bit, but uh, any other questions thus far? Let's see. Almost need a table. Yep, let's see. Um, oh, uh, Appendix 3 is all the deliverables, okay? This is, this is how we, uh, the five core targets under tab 3, notice. You see that? Yep. Just middle school. Yep. Now we have different uh, graphics to measure the senior high, but they don't meet on the weekend. Only middle school does. And in, not in all the campuses even. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. Depends on the size of the campus and the amount of children, you know, youth. Um, my own personal philosophy toward youth ministry is that it is, it is, a, uh, it is to a certain extent, a missiological endeavor that has a very slower ROI on it. And so I, I hate to put things in such crass economic terms, but, and I know that Jason is, is Jason still in here? Where's Jason? Anyway, I, I just, uh, in small churches and startups, let me just say it this, oh, look at you, love, thank you so much. <laughs> um, in small churches and startups, here's a basic axiom. Youth will, now th this is very San Diego, I don't know how it is here. In San Diego County, youth will rarely bring their parents and they will leave when they hit college, generally. So you have a very precarious and very low ROI. By that I mean return on investment. Very low ROI, okay? So, so, oh my gosh. I don't know how this is going to work. Hey, can I have an extra book? Uh, we have an extra book, Vic. No, I don't take yours. Is that all right? That'll work. Okay. Um, when I say ROI, I mean return on investment. So my point is, is that, okay, so youth will rarely bring their parents, and again, this is very San Diego contextually. I don't know how it is here. Youth will rarely bring their parents, and then they'll leave uh, at the end of high school. So you're going to spend a lot of money on them with no return in the short run, okay? Children in San Diego County, they never come without their parents. In San Diego County, there's too much issues of molest, uh, you know, pedophile, whatever, you know, like abuse. Nobody, nobody that I know of, I mean, they'll bring them, they'll send them with their friend's parents, you know, like, but that's like, you know, that's like you make me a blood brother before I'm letting you have my kid to take him to your church. But they'll bring their parents. So from a church planter's perspective, you must strategically choose where you're going to put the finite amount of money and energy and time you've got. And I would argue strategically that you must put it into the children and then the parents of those children. Now, if you're super gifted at youth, like that's your wheelhouse, now that can be different. You can, I have a friend, Luke in Oregon, he's building a church primarily on a youth culture. Um, Peter, in fact, Peter Haas is, is, you know, kind of doing the same thing. But I'm just saying, unless that's your like sweet spot. See, I was never a youth pastor. So I'm, I don't know, you know, like I'm good with them. I just... Whatever. I'm just saying strategically you must decide these things. And you must measure them. 
Because you, like, like, I would suppose at this point, we probably spend around, you know, I would guess around uh, probably $800,000 on, on, on missions, both home and global, for lack of a better word. Um, but when we were a baby church, we had, to be, we had to spend most of it on home because we had to be strategic about it. So I just want to caution you there. Um, and all these are the, are the, uh, the deliverables there. We can, these are what we measure, okay? Like weekend worship experience, look at how it, it, all these ten, eight things. Um, life groups, average annual number of life groups, unique adult attending life groups, uh, annual average sign-up for life groups, ratio percentage of life groups attendance. In my opinion, if you're not in a life group, you are set up for failure, I believe that you are going to have to work super, super hard at having authentic, accountable relationships where somebody will speak the truth and love into you and vice versa. It's just a natural setup for disaster for you. I believe that's true of pastors. I live in a life group. I'm not in one right now because of my schedule and my traveling, and I don't like it. I feel weakened spiritually because of it, I have to admit. In fact, Teresa and I are going to move. We're literally going to move back to Tierra Santa, where my main campus is, so that it'll be easier for me to get back into community. Right now, I have to commute about 30 minutes to get into community, and I, I, it's not working for me. And I feel spiritually a little bit atrophied because of it. And I've been out of a life group for about six months. That's never been the case. I'm not, I, I always am in a life group. When I became a baby Christian, by the way, I, I was exposed to navigators. So I was very involved with navigators as a baby Christian. Teresa and I did the Colossians 2-7, two-year discipleship small group experience. I used to oversee that also once upon a lifetime. So I'm super, super committed to life groups. So we measure. We're gnarly. I say from my platform, if you ever have to choose in any given week between your worship experience, being in this room right now where you are, or going to your life group, go to your life group. Don't come here. And then here, this is a worship experience. It's a great prophetic moment experience, blah, 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 awesome. You don't avoid it. I'm just saying in any one week, if you have to choose because of your schedule, pick your life group. They'll know you. You'll know them. They'll love you. You'll love them. They'll pray for you. You'll pray for them. In this room, it's a prophetic experience, hopefully not a pathetic experience, like I like to say. Yeah. Uh-huh. I would totally disagree with it. That's just my own opinion. Of, I do. I believe that it's kind of like Larry was saying earlier. Uh, once you go video or once you go live, it's hard to go back to video. I believe the same thing is true. See, the problem is this: if I started a midweek service, I would kill. We have a hundred and I want to say like a hundred and eighty-five or ninety life groups. Okay, if I started a midweek service where I spoke, oh my goodness, I would kill half my life groups. Because they would want to come and hear me. I go so much deeper. Oh, it's so amazing when you speak Pastor Mike, which would feel very good from an ego gratification perspective. I believe that you, uh, personal. This is my, these are just my views. Okay, so please, like, I, remember, I'm a recovering Catholic, so I'm trying not to be papal. Uh, so, like, I'm just saying, I would, if I were to go into a historic church, I would work systematically and carefully to kill every other thing except the Sunday morning, and then life groups. And outreaches. I would kill everything that competed with life groups. I'm, I'm a super fan of life groups, though. I get that that's controversial in this room, likely. 
like Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, that's the deal, right? I'm just, I just, I, I just don't, generally, this is huge generalization, but generally speaking, churches that are more on the cutting edge today don't do it that way, with the exception of whom? What's the great movement that goes flying right in the face of what I'm saying? Birthed in the 70s, Chuck Smith is their pope, I mean their leader, Calvary Chapel. Calvary Chapel would disagree fundamentally with me. They are very controlling. Uh, Calvary Chapel's work very, very controlling. They don't want to let anybody except the pastor's wife lead any women's stuff. And the pastor has to lead everything else. They're very, you know, the men, women, you know, they have a very different uh, theology of women in ministry than we do. They don't let women do anything with men over, what, 13 or something like that. So they're very different theologically on that regard. But the Calvary Chapel movement is pretty much the exception to what I'm saying. But generally, I would kill everything that competes with life groups and outreach. Like, if my people aren't doing outreach, it bothers me. So we do need to make it safe for them. So we do outreaches all the time, like, that make it safe for them. Like, there's a parade this coming Saturday. I'll be in the parade because it's in my community. So I'm in the parade. Not because I'm, like, the parade guy or something. We just do this huge outreach in this parade where we give all kinds of stuff away to all the children watching the parade. We put lots of children in the parade. And then we put a, one of our kickinest bands in that parade. They play total rock music, just slays it. Everybody loves that band. We have a lot of bands in our church. And then we give away all kinds of stuff. And then we set up a jumpy house. So they all come to the jumpy house. Then we give away snow cones. We give everything away, by the way, in the community, in the outreach. We always give everything away. We never charge for anything. Everybody in any sphere of influence of New Break's ministry knows that New Break never charges for any of their stuff. We give it away. Anyway, notice they measure generosity. That's a new thing. Uh, we give to the campus pastors their givers. I, I was confronted with that poor theology along, uh, along the same time about two years ago. They said, Pastor, if you do not know what your people give, how in the world are you discipling them with regard to generosity? I know that that's complicated for you, but... Don't triangulate yourself into that problem. If you have a problem with that, you need to fix yourself. You need to go see a therapist, get some counseling on what's going on there and how you treat people different. I'm not talking about being James and, you know, treating the rich folks different from the poor folks. I'm just saying you're not discipling them on a key sin issue in their life and or wonderful issue. In fact, Pastor Mike, in fact, your givers feel somewhat marginalized by you because you really don't give them a great deal of attention. You tend to give the really, you know, less givers more attention. If you were to poll them, actually, Pastor Mike, you would discover that they feel a little bit awkward around you because they're, they're, they're givers, they're players, they're leaders in their corporations, they're leaders in their, you know, they're, they're, in, they're public defenders, they're, they're educators, they're, you know, vice principals and principals and all that. They're who's given, there's who's funding your ministry, and they feel a little bit marginalized by you. They feel like they're a little bit on the outside. So I had to come, by the way, the key problem with New Break a year and a half ago, two years ago, from a generosity perspective, was me. I was super dysfunctional about this issue. I still felt, I did, by the way, I literally did go to therapy for it. I've gone to therapy for a lot of things. <laughs> when my kid got that girl pregnant, we went to therapy. Uh, when he was going through his divorce, went to therapy. That grandson, 
his ex. She moved in with a guy, had another child by that guy. That guy abused physically my grandson. I wanted to kill him. I had my SEAL team guys come to me. Say, Pastor Mike, just look my direction. I was in a court battle for two years over that grandson. Pretty much bankrupted, Teresa and I. But at the end of two years, we won. I had to go to therapy for that, too. I also had to go to therapy <laughs> about this issue of money. It wasn't that I wasn't tithing and I wasn't being generous. It's just that it was kind of conflicting in me. And I, got, I also had to go to my brothers, you know, like pastor figure, like Dick, Dresselhouse, Ray, Rachel's. I had to talk to other pastors about how they do it and, and realize I was just doing it wrong. Why was I doing it wrong? Because I never asked anybody. Because it's kind of like this private thing. I don't know if I felt ashamed of it. I, I did. I mean, I know now. I'm just saying, we measure this stuff. And then I went to all my campus pastors because I gave away what I had. They were my children. I had infected all of them with improper DNA. And so I had to go to all my campus pastors and repent to them. And then I had to teach them how to do it. And I'm still learning how to do it. But that's one of the measurables. My campus pastors know who their givers are. They know what their giving per unit is. They know when, when people start to give, they write them a handwritten card. When they hit our database... They're a giver for the first time. My campus pastors write them a handwritten card, and we have a ticker in our database. Let's say you give $500 a month. That's your tithe on average, right? But all of a sudden, you dropped a check for $1,000. There's a ticker in my database. We use F1. And when you do that, my campus and me, we write you a card thanking you for your generosity to shake the planet. When the, the inverse is true, if you drop off the radar from a giving perspective... You're backsliding, or you're leaving, or something's wrong, or your marriage is in a wreck, or something's wrong. We don't even pay attention. They think we just don't care. It's on our policies and procedures that they agree and sign their contract to tithe, um, and we monitor that very carefully. Uh, pastor Robert, my executive pastor, and Burley, the guy that we're hiring in to be our director of business and business development, basically. He'll do this in the future. But uh, then they have... Actually, we, we push it down to their over... It depends on who they are. Like if it's an admin person, uh, their direct overseer talks with them in their regular thing. Hey, I noticed that you know your giving is different. Am I reading it incorrectly? That first question. Am I, am I not getting the right data? A very important first question, by the way. Don't, you know, <laughs> right? Like, am I reading the data? It's, no, no. And then they'll immediately confess their sin to you, right? Um, I always say, by the way, Catholics, we confess our sin to somebody who doesn't know us, can't see us, and whatever, right? Protestants, we don't confess our sin to anybody except God. Neither is correct. So anyway, so on generosity, that's how we do it. So we push it down to whatever level it is. We don't have much problem. Well, honestly, I've had a couple of problems with my campus pastors, two of them in particular, got into financial trouble. So we have benevolence, too. Like, you know, like I, we have a whole benevolence ministry in our church. Now, for the, my campus pastors, I kind of protected them a little bit from the process that's sort of in a whole team that does that. 
because I just got complicated. So, but I'm just saying we we do, that's how we do it. Yeah, in our legal opinion, that's illegal. So we don't do it. One of my my executive pastor's wife, who is the administrative leader of my sermon team, was magna cum laude out of her undergraduate degree, magna cum laude out of law school. She was the editor of her law journal in law school. And she's our legal advisor on our staff. Richard Hammer is like her hero. Richard Hammer, oh my gosh. If you talk to Lisa about Richard Hammer, she gets this glossy look in her eye. So when I, w- I was in Richard Hammer's office about six months ago, and, and uh, I took a picture of me sitting at his desk and texted it to Lisa, she got so mad at me, she couldn't believe She was so jealous. But yeah, I think if you were to ask Richard Hammer that question, he would say it's illegal uh, on a tax issue. Oh, yeah, let's take a break. You guys can come up and ask me any questions, by the way. Well, yeah, yeah, no worries.